on an animal trafficking scale, it's really industrial scale, right? So this is the problem. It's not the low-level hunters or people, kind of indigenous people hunting or taking things from the forest, even if it's illegal. You know, that's not the problem. It's really this kind of industrial extraction or really just globalized theft of countries' re uh, resources, natural resources. Welcome to this Investec Focus radio podcast. I am Tanya Dos Santos, the head of Investec's Group Sustainability. In this podcast, we expose the scale of transnational illegal wildlife trafficking and what's needed to win this war. Spearheaded by His Royal Highness Prince William, the Royal Foundation and United for Wildlife help relevant stakeholders join forces to eradicate wildlife crime. I'm joined today by both Rob Campbell and Tim Wittick from the Royal Foundation, as well as Gerald Bailefelt, Investec's Head of Financial Crime. Tim, let's start with you. What, what is the Royal Foundation and United for... They're two separate organizations. Yeah. What do they actually do? Yeah, it's, um, so the Royal Foundation is the Royal Foundation of the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, so Prince William and uh, Kate, as you, most of you are probably more familiar with. Um, he is particularly passionate about the illegal wildlife trade, having spent a number of uh, trips to Africa you know, in his childhood and, and even now. And so one of his, his efforts is, is really to, you know, how can he contribute towards the illegal wildlife trade? How can he you know, use his power or influence to coordinate some kind of response to address the, the growing sort of trade in illegal wildlife? So out of that was born United for Wildlife, which is a program of the Royal Foundation. Um, which, which I head up the sort of relationship side, Tim uh, heads up the intelligence side. Um, and together, we, th the aim really is to, is to bring private sector together. So um, typically industries that aren't familiar with illegal wildlife trade. So we started with transport, with the transport sector. All illegal wildlife trade, like any trade commodity, needs to move from A to B, from sort of source to destination. Well, you know, wildlife trafficking is no different. It predominantly demand is supply is here in Africa and demand is in Asia. So we started looking at transport sector who was, you know, shipping airlines who can, we can provide them with intelligence, which is Tim's side, and they could, you know, update their processes or systems um, in order to better respond and sort of reduce the risk. With the financial side, we've looked at, okay, it's great having, you know, the, the movement of the goods, but it also, if you miss that movement, you know, we've got no, no way of tracking or going back and a sort of, investigating the criminal activity, but the financial institutions, you have a breadcrumb trail or an audit trail of, of transactional receipts that can be used to then, you know, look at the, the wider criminal network. So, you know, with the transport sector, as well as a seizure on the sort of coast or on the border, you can also look at the criminals who won't obviously, you know, maybe at the top of the chain. So, Tim, illegal wildlife crime has been valued at about $20 billion <coughs> per annum. What, what is that? What is illegal mm. wildlife crime? How do they define what, what, is, what does that 20 billion actually consist of? Yeah, so, I mean, so that's the 20 billion, um, that usually refers to animals, right? So fauna, and that's, uh, so like all the kind of iconic species like el elephant for ivory and rhino for rhino horn, uh, pangolin, now big cats. Uh, but it's really, and, and, and all the non, less iconic animals like all the little reptiles and birds and and things <laughs> and it's really um, on an animal trafficking scale it's really industrial scale right so this is the problem it's not the low-level hunters or people kind of indigenous people hunting or taking things from the forest even if it's illegal you know that's not the problem it's really this kind of industrial extraction or really just globalized theft of 
countries' re uh, resources, natural resources, biodiversity. And so Africa is a, is a big victim of this and, um, and you know, supply location, but it's really a global problem. I mean, Asia, Latin America, China is often, I mean, a lot of issues with China as a, as a demand country, uh, but it's also, uh, Vietnam is also a big one for rhino horn. But a lot goes to Europe, a lot of small reptiles and stuff. There's a huge trade in, in and through Europe. Uh, the U.S. is one of the biggest destination countries for, for birds, and especially from Latin America. Uh, so it's really a global problem. And then actually, you say 20 billion, but actually if you include timber, so if you include uh, flora, so like flora and fauna, uh, if you include timber, it's more like 150 billion. It's a huge industry. And then, uh, and actually, uh, recently I contributed to a World Bank report, and we estimated that if you include all environmental crime, um, so illegal fishing, illegal logging, wildlife trafficking, uh, and the rest of it, it's actually probably a trillion dollar industry, one to two trillion dollars, all right? So, and that's, that's, so we included like also lost tax revenue and, and all of that. So really the cost to society is probably well over a trillion dollars. I mean, this sounds out of control. It's totally out of control, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. so how does the task force plan to, to try and have an impact on this? What, what is mm -hmm. the aim? For wildlife trafficking, uh, all of this goes, uh, well, it started with transport, and the reason why it started with transport, so that's shipping companies, maritime and airlines, uh, and also like, like, so like DHL and express companies like that, uh, and ports and airports. <coughs> and so, uh, because 99% of this trade goes commercially, right? So, so that's the, you know, it's not, uh, we're not dealing with Mexican drug cartels or claiming drug cartels who are making their own submarines to, you know, to, uh, import drugs into Europe or the U.S., right? It's, it's going on commercial vessels. It's going on, yeah, so commercial shipping. And then, uh, and then on the finance now, so recently is, um, so the big, the big problem, you know, so usually the people that we notice or that are in the news are maybe the lower level smugglers or every once in a while a bigger, a bigger fish. But really behind all of this are the, I would say the real shadow facilitators uh, who are yeah, often uh, you know, corrupt uh, business people are corrupt officials, unfortunately, you know, in, in a lot of countries, uh, big speculators. And so, uh, and they're very heavily exposed in, obviously, in the finance industry. And they're probably involved, or almost certainly involved, in a lot of other financial crime, too. So this is actually a, uh, well, so some people call it the soft underbelly of transnational organized crime. Okay, so I'm, I'm going to pop it over then to Gerald. So, Gerald, can you explain a little bit more? How do you go about um, identifying uh, potential parties that could be involved in a predicate crime? We're primarily responsible to make sure that Investec doesn't get used to launder money from, from all of these predicate crimes. So, predicate crime is basically a crime that gets committed before the money gets laundered. So, in this case, it would be somebody needs to trade wildlife illicitly and the financial flows that they get from, from that illicit trading would then become a flow that somebody tries to put through a banking organization or a financial organization to make the funds look legit. So our team has got very sophisticated systems to look for unusual transactional behavior, a system that looks for specific industries, um, specific types of clients that would make those clients high risk. But the success in, in being able to identify these types of behaviors really sits with the whole organization. It doesn't sit with a single team. Uh, our guys that are dealing with the clients every day will know when a client suddenly shows up with a million rand cash 
uh, and he happens to run a game farm, that should be unusual. So it really is a combined effort. We, we haven't necessarily picked up illicit flows, but we have come across clients where we believe that their transactions don't support their business model, particularly guys in the private bank that run game farms. And for those guys, we, we will make the decision to exit them as a client if we can't explain that behavior. We then also have the responsibility to report them through to the Financial Intelligence Center. So in addition to doing all of those checks throughout, there are some structured databases that one can screen against, which we screen our clients. Every night we screen all of our clients against these lists. And just yesterday we had a discussion around how we incorporate some of the lists that come out of the, the Wildlife Trust into those screening mechanisms so that we can pick up where there's people that are known to participate in wildlife trading and we've got them on our books, we can pick them up quicker. Do you ever collaborate with the other banks on this, South African banks on this? It's been a very hard thing to do because of privacy concerns, but in November last year, the industry, so all the banks, law enforcement, the South African Reserve Bank and the Financial Intelligence Center established what is called SAMLIT, uh, the South African Money Laundering Task Team. And the idea was get a place where banks can get together, speak freely, it stays in the room, the regulators don't react on the information, the police is there to pick up information immediately. And, and in other mostly European countries where they've done similar task teams like uh, Jimlet, you'll yeah. know from the UK, um, they've been very successful in actually combating crime rather than making it a compliance thing. Okay, so Rob, I would, I'll bring it back to you then to talk a little bit more about the aims of the Royal Foundation. Uh, how many members do you have now? 30? Uh, so we're actually up to 40 on the financial task force, 150 if you include all the transport task force. Okay, but, um, but thir- uh, almost 40 in yeah. financial sector, but there are hundreds of banks around the world. So what, I- what is your aim? What is your vision? What do you want from the financial sector? It's a g- good question. So, um, I mean, following on from what Gerald was saying there, you know, it's initiatives like Sam Luck that there are so many banks here that will have little pieces of the pie and it's, in it, it's those kind of forums that is the only forum where all the banks can come together and say, oh, yeah, we've got an account with that guy, but it looks like this. And it's only until you have that meeting that the law enforcement go, okay, this is quite, something quite considerable because the other banks can't see what's going on in here and you guys can't see what's going on there. And so they, you know, setting up those kind of forums is one of the real aims of the, ta- of the financial task force. And you know, having someone like the Duke of Cambridge makes that much easier because he can direct line to presidents, prime ministers, you know, sort of heads of government departments to, to get that ball moving. And, and it certainly makes, you know, I start emails with, well, the Duke asked you to do this, even if he didn't, because <laughs> I, I get a much better response. But uh, so uh, you can imagine, so the key aims of the task was really to raise awareness, you know, why are we here in this room? Well, it's because you've, you've got an interest in, in the trade of illegal wildlife and you'd like to know what Investec are doing about it and potentially what they could do in future, so that's one aim. The other aim is really, you know, intelligence-led action. So, you know, we feed in, Tim feeds um, intelligence from the conservation world with a financial um, angle, I suppose. So analysis on red flags and typologies that are popping up, the sort of thing that will be, you know, is really helpful with Gerald's team. Um, that they can use that to then say, okay, right, we can add this as a filter to our sort of screening process or, or things like that. Um, other, you know, another initiative aims is, is 
facilitating innovation in sort of technology platforms. So we're not quite there yet with the financial services, but with transport, we're looking at working actually with Johannesburg Airport at the moment, and they are developing a scanning system that will pick up Rhino, Ivory, you know, that sort of thing. And that, this is new. This is, you know, no other, you know, Heathrow in London are doing something slightly different, but, you know, this is brand new. The world isn't, isn't there yet. And so, um, you know, it's facilitating those kind of projects and, and raising awareness. And the other part is convening. So bringing you know, all of these people together. And that is, again, where the Duke is good, because we can go to banks that, that you know, the, these banks that we suspect either need coming up to speed, you know, through sharing best practice, or we can go to the banks who are doing a lot, you know, Investec, you know, Standard Chartered, and we say, you guys are doing such a great job, but you really need to share that. This is not a competitive space. You know, the, the best practice that you have here is great, but, you know, all the criminals are now just going there. So we need to spread that knowledge. Um, and so that, that's really what we're trying to achieve, is sort of an umbrella of wildlife trafficking expertise, you know, where we can really have, a, have an impact on criminal activity. So do you see a good spread of um, participation across the globe? I mean, do you have Australian banks in there? Yeah, we do, yeah. Um, we had a reasonable spread across the globe until November-ish time last year, but we were significantly lacking in China. No, not a single mm. Chinese bank, and it's no secret, a, a lot of the demand comes from you know, Asia, China, that sort of side of things. So it's really integral to have that side of commitment from there, and, and we did an event in Beijing where we raised, similar to this, um, but raised awareness, and, and we've had, uh, so far, six since that we've had six chinese banks fairly significant big chinese banks join and i, I they're slightly different you know, they sort of click their fingers and say that's not happening anymore and suddenly you know i, I mean i saw in the paper uh, on sunday that on the back of this virus outbreak which is awful but you know china have banned wildlife trade completely until that is resolved and i wonder you know, what kind of impact? And if that carries on, we're out of a job, you know, because we've, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, so that's the sort of, you know, um, yeah, China is really coming on board with this a lot, which, and that was the final puzzle, right, final well, piece. that's where the majority of the demand lies. There's a lot, yeah. I, I'm surprised to hear how much Europe plays a role. So that, that, I mean, that would be interesting to explore a bit more because we're always told that it's, you know, the Chinese market that are driving demand. Actually, just on Europe, I mean, for these reptiles especially, <laughs> and, uh, but they don't do anything about it. Yeah, they're very weak on it, actually. Is it used for clothing? You know, is that your exotic skin pets. shoes and handbags? Exotic pets. As pets? Yeah. Pets, yeah, that's most of it. And then, um, but big, you know, international criminal networks, especially tied to like Ukraine and Germany, especially, and then also the Balkans, like uh, former Yugoslavia. And then, uh, yeah, so that's a, that's a good example. And I mean, I think, you know, with, the, with what we're trying to do ultimately against the wildlife tr illegal wildlife trade is that wildlife traffickers can almost operate with impunity. You know, it's very easy to make a lot of money on wildlife trafficking. It's heavily tied into, it's becoming increasingly tied into other organized crime, Chinese organized crime, like triads. It's a big problem in South Africa with the abalone Abalone uh, trade and in the Cape, and um, but also that's that's spreading like in Zambia and, and, and other places. You, you see a lot of involvement of <coughs> other types of organized crime. A lot of a lot of overlaps with drug trafficking. There's some some kind of tangential relationships with with some terrorist groups. Uh, also, it's, that's been a little bit overhyped, but it's also uh, it's definitely there. Um, and uh, yeah, so so it's a big it's a big problem. And so so by mobilizing the financial sector especially is that it just makes it hard for these um it, it will it will eventually if we're successful make it really difficult for these big wildlife trafficking networks like the professionals 
to, to do this business at scale, right? Which is really what we want to stop. I mean, we'll never stop like completely, you know, eliminate poaching or something like that. I mean, there's, um, uh, there's deer poaching in, in the U.S. And I mean, it's like you just, that's, that's not the problem is that industrial scale kind of theft of all, of all the wildlife. And then so I think that's what the finance sector can really help on because that's not really possible unless you're able to move, you know, major product and, uh, and all that money, right? And then and as a financial institution, I think the biggest challenge for us is uh, these guys are getting more and more clever to mix their sort of illicit illegal flows with legal businesses mm. that becomes this mix mash of of what is potentially legal versus what is illegal and how you separate the mm. two flows. It really requires quite sophisticated looking at people's transactions and mm. them as clients to understand what they're doing, whether it's legal or illegal, whether it's a mix yeah. of the two. <laughs> and I think you know, a new frontier, and this is especially relevant for companies like Investec, is uh, actually being able to assess investments you know, proactively mm -hmm. for, uh, for risk about potential impact on wildlife trade. Because mm -hmm. actually a lot of, so for example, in Kenya, um, like the south coast of Kenya, there's a lot of smuggling that goes on. I mean, and it, that's been the case for centuries, really. Uh, but that, that's where a lot of the uh, ivory is smuggled, like from Tanzania, in other words, uh, up to Mombasa, is around this like southern, uh, south coast of Kenya, and also that's where a lot of heroin comes in. And <coughs> it's also uh, from Afghanistan, comes into, comes into there. But then it's really tied into the sugar industry there. And so that's probably be good to know for people investing in the sugar industry. But yeah. I believe that you've had some yeah. success in breaking up the ivory trafficking in East Africa. Mm -hmm. uh, tell us a bit more about how, how you did that. Tell us some of the successes. So okay. that's what we can, you know, start looking out for in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I think, you know, one, one uh, big success is just, uh, is just really mobilizing everybody, putting this on the agenda, first of all. And that's something that really everyone can, can play a part in. <laughs> and then, uh, but yeah, so this, this case, this was a big case, two year, over two years, involved a big investigation all over Africa, actually. And then uh, with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which has a lot of international attaches, including here in Pretoria. And also uh, law enforcement in Uganda, Senegal, Guinea, and uh, Kenya, and Tanzania also. So it's a big case. Lots of countries involved, and then uh, so so this this took down um, four four big wildlife traffickers were indicted in, in the U.S. So this is for extradition to the U.S. This network is really one of the biggest ivory and rhino horn trafficker trafficking networks in Africa, and is really connected to a lot of other ones too. So yeah, so that was a great success. Uh, f I mean, just to bring them down, and also all the all the kind of follow-on uh, stuff. Have they that been we can sentenced do. yet? No, they're in custody they got a free trip to new york yeah well that, that's <laughs> why i'm asking because in, in south africa we we often see that they they've been apprehended but mm. the sentencing side is where our country severely lacks well that's what was interesting about this case is that this was uh these were kind of untouchable people all right so they had been arrested multiple times before always had gotten always had bribed out had a lot of connections at very high levels and um but yeah but i think i mean this because of the international involvement, because of the involvement of the U.S. law enforcement, but also neighboring countries, is that that's uh, well, they're touchable, obviously. So, so you can um, I do, and then the a lot of the finance, certain finance task force members played a role in this case, like as a, a positive role, as helping on the investigation because they were they were using some of their uh, financial networks. Mm -hmm. 
So, I mean, just on that topic, it's interesting if you look at the statistics. So, if you go back 2013-14, we had about 10 or 12 cases of wildlife trafficking convictions in South Africa. Uh, end of 2016, that was 86. So, the numbers definitely are going up, and I don't know if that's because the poaching activity is going up or whether our law enforcement is getting better. Hopefully, it's the latter. <laughs> I think it's a bit of both, to be honest. Mm. It definitely has increased, but the law enforcement has improved. Mm. Um, but Gerald, I want to come back to you on, on that very thing. What are those red flags? You know, it's been mentioned a few times. What, kind, what are red flags? What, what, uh, you know, what kind of things are you looking at to try and pick up wildlife crime? It goes without saying that these people don't typically trade in EFTs. It's, there's a lot of cash moving around here. Um, so we, um, especially in our transactional accounts, uh, keep a very close eye on where there's people that transact in huge amounts of cash. What we also try and now do is to combine that cash behavior with where people are known to operate in certain industries. So you may legitimately have a game farm somewhere which um, typically gets a lot of foreign tourists and there is cash changing hands there. Um, where that cash behavior becomes excessive is where we really start getting worried because then it points to something a little bit more commercial than people coming to do hunting. And then we, we have a very um, unsophisticated way of looking at media at the moment. Uh, we're busy doing a lot of investment into technology to scan all the different media sources and pick up where people are known to have either been involved in poaching or play an intermediary or even a customer role where they're buying wildlife. Yeah, illegitimately. Uh, so those are the two big things that we, we're doing at the moment. But I think there's a lot more to be done. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you've seen with, with the rhino crisis, they talk about 26 layers uh, from the first point at which cash changes hands uh, to the final user. Mm. They're 26 channels. So that means cash has changed hands or a, a financial transaction has happened 26 times mm. across the globe. Like, to me, that just sounds like we must be able to figure, we must, that must come across the radar mm. somewhere. But everyone's keeping that information to themselves. Mm. So Which is really where organizations like the, the IWT, uh, because we can get those lists from them, people that are known to be, be doing, participating in this activity, and just check it against our client base. Yeah. So Rob, how are you developing those red flag lists? How, how have you gone about doing that? Um, so, I mean, we are, Tim and I are not financial services experts or, you know, financial crime compliance experts. So we rely on industry to come up with those. So what we do is to try and, you know, set the, the blueprint or the template and you know, give them the forum, get the right people into the room who have the knowledge and can sort of share that knowledge. You know, we, um, it, it's exactly people like Gerald who are going to, you know, come up with the solutions because you're at the coalface of seeing, you know, where are the gaps? What are we, what are we not seeing? How can we get that information that we're missing? And you know, we can then facilitate additional people in the room, or, or, or you know, raise awareness in different sectors to bring it in. But that's typically, you know, how we go about those sort of red flag groups or those those you know solution groups. Okay, so it's an ongoing process. This. Yeah, there's no there's no fixed answer. You know, this is um, you know, so um, this is a new thing, particularly in financial services. The CITES list, so the CITES in Dan which is 
the sort of organizer or the, the regular governing body of, of who decides what's endangered and what's not. On those sort of critically endangered lists, there's about 1,618 different species on that list. So um, only 2% of that list have ever recovered to an extent where they're removed from that list. So you're looking at a, a, a huge number of species that are on a sort of rare, fairly rapid freefall. And, and sort of, you know, if you look at that, that's what we've been doing for the last 40, 50 years. It's not working. You know, we're, we're before long, you know, maybe 10, 20 years, elephants won't be any in the wild. There won't be these sort of species. And so, you know, how, you know wh why do we need to, you know, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting slightly different results. But, you know, we need to change up the game plan and, you know, look at transport to bring in, focus on financial services, look at, you know, chasing the money and making the money really difficult to be, you know, a, a transaction for criminal activity. You know, it is unfortunately in South Africa, a lot of it is done in cash and that's just mm. a new problem, but it's, it's not unsolvable. You know, we've, you guys are financial experts, you know, this is like one of the mm. biggest global banks and, and um, you know, along with the other 30 or 40 and hopefully in a year or two's time, you know, 100 banks, you know, will have definitive answers to how to, and, you know, really just squeeze that criminal um, ability to make money. I've heard often about the mansions with the Ferraris that pop up in Bushbuck Ridge on the border of Kruger Park, which I thought was a story, but I genuinely have seen it. Mm -hmm. I've seen how there's suddenly there's this most immaculate mansion, beautifully done, and you know all these uh, luxury cars are parked outside. And it's just so obvious where that must come from. And while that type of clientele may not have been banking with an Investec, you know, to start with, at some point they're going to need to join one of, you know, the more international banks. And, you know, how do you then, Gerald, go about and start questioning people's lifestyles? Part of our process when somebody joins the bank as a client is to understand where their source of funds and their source of wealth comes from. It becomes more difficult when somebody's already quite an established, wealthy, high net worth individual to really get an understanding of what that source of wealth is. But if there are obvious red flags that pop up, and I'm not going to talk about some examples, but we've got some clients that are, like in the last year, have bought like somewhere around 30, 40 million rands worth of cars that they've imported. Those are typical red flags that should pop up to us to say there's something untoward here. And the philosophy for the bank should be, if you can't explain it, then you don't have the right to become a client of ours. And to, to Tim's point, the moment you start locking them out of the financial system, there's no real reward for them. They can sit on that cash and they can't do anything with it. But the moment that they can legitimize it through buying expensive cars, building big mansions that they then sell, then you give them access to a, f to a financial system. Guys, thank you so much for joining us today. It really is clear that illegal wildlife trade is not just a South African or even African problem, and nor is it purely a conservation issue. Wildlife crime is a global issue with severe financial and economic impacts that actually threaten our very existence. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate us and subscribe to Investec Focus Radio wherever you get your podcast. The views expressed are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily represent the views of the firm and should not be taken as advice or recommendation. Investec Specialist Bank, a division of Investec Bank Limited, is a registered credit provider.